Hi there, I'm Jimmy. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you like what you're about to hear, you can get the full experience and see the video on YouTube in the description with this episode. And you can always find more episodes and activities waiting for you at duaba.org. Thank you for joining me. In today's episode, I'll answer some of your questions, and we'll meet a colossal new long-necked dinosaur whose name is a real musical mouthful. But first, let's meet our special guests, a father and son creative team behind the ambitious new documentary, Why Dinosaurs? It's going to be awesome. you're joining me for today's episode. And be sure to check out dwaba.org for the journals and research that went into making this piece. Growing up, I was glued to anything dinosaur related. TV shows, books, games, documentaries. My favorite was always 1986's Dinosaur, hosted by Christopher Reeve. Come on, Superman talking about dinosaurs in New York City? <laughs> Done! <laughs> Interviews with scientists like Robert Bacher, Phil Curry, and Jack Horner brought paleontology into our homes faster than a speeding bullet. A highlight of that special was the inclusion of Phil Tippett's stop-motion short, Prehistoric Beast, which helped land Tippett the job of dinosaur supervisor for Jurassic Park. You had one job! While Tippett's painstaking recreation of the late Cretaceous period was an incredible feat of cinematic magic, the science behind the overall special has not aged as gracefully. The time has come to update our understanding of these magnificent creatures and maybe discover why they continue to captivate our imagination, even after all these decades of discovery. And that's the question that will be answered next year with a new documentary in production by James and Tony Pinto, the father and son duo who ask us, why dinosaurs? I think people love dinosaurs because they are big, they're bizarre, and they're extinct. They have horns and spikes and sails and all kinds of weird and wonderful bony features. They were, you know, all these things are your nightmares as a kid, except they were real. <laughs> Knowing that there was animals that are 13 feet tall at the hip and got a head that's five feet long, you know, great big teeth, they're just cool. I don't know what else to say yet. You know, if it weren't for dinosaurs, we probably wouldn't have the resources and the knowledge that we do today about paleontology. You could show that dinosaurs were feathered and that they probably are ancestral to birds, but people resist that. Understanding ancient worlds with warmer climates will be critical as we think about what the world will be like that we're living into. Tony of Why Dinosaurs. What's your favorite dinosaur? Ah, uh, no. No. <laughs> I'll go first. I ask everybody. Yeah, I, go I go back and forth. On on the theropod side, I like Allosaurus. Mm. He's just a more aesthetic theropod. T-Rex to me has a big head and you know, really small arms. And I don't know. It, sometimes I like it and sometimes I think he's really weird and top heavy. Allosaurus is just kind of streamlined. And then 
on the uh, other side of the fence, I like Triceratops. He's just nice. cute. I mean, they've, they've made him into such a cool character. And and I like that he kind of is often depicted as standing up against the T-Rex. Like, you know, bring it, sucker. The and, unstoppable you know, force he, against the immovable object. I always love those guys against each other. Yeah, absolutely David right. and Goliath. That's it. So those are, those are my favorites. <laughs> Hmm. I mean, this is the thing. I, I, I'm terrible at choosing a favorite of anything anyway, but with dinosaurs, I mean, there's, there's just too many choices. You know, I mean, and I got to say, there's no wrong answer to this question. I've asked it of everyone that I've spoken to, either on camera or off camera, as soon as they say, oh, you have a dinosaur tree? Yes, I do. What's your favorite dinosaur? Um, I'm not keeping a list at all. I'm sure I'm not going to produce the results of all these asking, but uh, it's nice to see people who have more of an academic uh, approach to it will ask, will say that they have a real infatuation with some very obscure creatures. Uh, like one, yeah. of, one of my, like I, I don't have one favorite. My, my number one is always going to be T-Rex. Up to the uh, but, <laughs> but like I rounded out my top three, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tyrannosaurus Rex. Uh, I love the Aloro Titan, which I didn't even uh, know that existed until like two years ago. It was a dinosaur, and it was so elegant. It's amazing. It's it's a hadrosaur, but instead of a trombone, he's swinging an axe in the back of his head. It's really cool. Yeah, and yeah, he's got the back half of the Yeah, and then my third favorite dinosaur of all time is the cassowary, because it will kill you six <laughs> times before you hit the ground. <laughs> you look at that bird, and you're like, no, birds aren't about dinosaurs. Tell me this one is not a dinosaur with the crest on its head and the six-inch retractable claw. No, it's a dinosaur, 100%. But, James, we've stalled enough. What's your favorite dinosaur here? <laughs> um, I'm going to give you a couple. Um, I do it's, – it's really funny. I've gone back and forth because I've actually done work with um, Spinosaurus fossils. Oh, okay. Uh, I've, I've, I did, as a middle school science fair project, a – geochemical study on uh, on their teeth without getting too much into it just based on the amount of, of isotopes of oxygen in the uh, inorganic molecules of their sediments uh, determining how close or far away from an ocean mm -hmm. source they were so it would it would portend ocean shredding behavior or freshwater behavior, you know, more or less, based on where their mouth kind of was. What a fascinating approach to that question. That's really great. Yeah. He won the California State Science Fair with that experiment. You, you can win the Florida uh, State yeah. Fair from over here, too. James, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, jump right into your background and your discoveries that you've made and things that you've done that have taken you through the world of paleontology. So, James, what, right. do you, what do you do so, for a living now? I, I hear that you have an amazing job. <laughs> uh, what do I do for a living? I am a, a student for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a, a volunteer position at the La Brea Tar Pits. I, I see you representing the shirt. <laughs> I saw that. That's what... <laughs> So the the, the the Brea Tar Pits are part of the Page Museum, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And they are all, the Page Museum and the L.A. Natural History Museum and another very obscure museum are all owned under a single family that is that traces itself back to the county. That's living the dream, man. And, That's the show right there. 
the very carpet. Yeah. It's just an incredible facility, and you get to go there every day. And and what do you do with the carpet? For about six months or so, I was a docent, mm -hmm. and it was very interesting doing that, just because the process of delivering information about paleontology, you know, to to just sort of anyone. Uh, not necessarily a paleontologist. It's something, it's something that I thought about, and obviously, you know, you're talking with family and friends, and you have to sort of explain things if you want to talk about your stuff, but really getting in depth with that, you know, thinking about how do I get concepts across to uh, young children, or because it, it contradicts most of the rules of your paleontological fossilization site. How so? The, the, the bones are not permineralized, Mm -hmm. So they aren't, in that sense, fossils. I mean, you call them fossils just because of their age, but they are literally the original bone materials filled with asphalt and uh, darkened permanently by that. So not only is, is the, the microbial population of the asphalt eating it back, mm -hmm. it's also constantly churning because it's sort of like if you were heating and then cooling a street every you know a thousand or so years yeah. and the stuff in the street moved a little bit <laughs> some of it stayed closer to the top and there's just a jumble of bones and stuff in this asphaltic pit so it, everything about it is so bizarre and explaining it's like a all slow of that cooker is, and it's just it's making a, a it's making a giant vat of smilodon soup and all the yeah, parts yeah. keep how how old how old are the specimens that you're finding in the Librea Tarpit? The the specimens in the tarpets they range from I think the oldest thing that's ever been found there is about fifty five thousand mm -hmm. two thousand years old. It's a piece of wood. Um, the youngest stuff is well, the youngest stuff is actually modern because lizards and dragonflies and stuff still get trapped in there to this day. They can't read but, the sign. They, the sign says don't go in. They can't figure that out. They're just diving right in. <laughs> but the the oldest that you'll see, you know, your bigger creatures is about ten thousand. So right at the end of the, it's called the Pleistocene Holocene extinction event. Not technically a mass extinction, but still definitely a change in a lot of the life we saw. You know, sliced off sort of the top ten percent of big life forms. Jimmy, have you been to the carpet? I have not been there physically myself. I have uh, I've had a lot of opportunities to explore the museums in California. Uh, the Tar Pits and the Page Museum is definitely at the top of my list of places I need to get out and see. But I feel like I've been there because I've seen other documentaries and there's a lot of uh, videos and a lot of experiences that take you there. How many movies film a scene in front of that wall with a dire wolf skull? And that's just such an iconic yeah. position where you see all the skulls of these canines that have been found in the pits over the years. So while I haven't personally set foot or been ejected from getting too close to the pits myself, I <laughs> I know that one day that's going to happen. <laughs> and I just couldn't get over the fact you do a 360-degree turn and it's like you're in the middle of Los Angeles, you know. But here is carved out these tar pits, like, it just it doesn't make sense that it is where it is. And can you imagine how expensive that land is, you know? <laughs> On the Miracle Mile. Yeah. Yeah. And it's awesome that it's been, you know, 
maintained. And there's a there's a good amount of space on the grounds you can walk around, and it's just it's just weird that it's right in the middle of the city. Someone is walking by there one day, and you you could put two soul cycles and a Jamba Juice here, and what are we doing? <laughs> the the way that most people sort of think of the Liberia Tarpits is kind of misguided, mostly due to the statues at the museum being very misleading. You have the, oh, the mastodon uh, and the mammoth in there with the with the saber tooth cats jumping on them from the side, and the like the well, well, the, well the kicker of it is that you have a, a mammoth like sloshing into the pit <laughs> like it's and and it's sinking you know at this rapid rate. In reality, what would happen is, is almost sadder. The animal would walk over the pit, get stuck to it like flypaper, and then just live out the rest of its days. Oh man! <laughs> you know, it's like a glue trap for a, a rat or something. And then after yeah. after weeks, and you know, maybe once the there were a couple of hotter days, the carcass of it would start sinking in over a long period of time. And that's part of the reason, actually, that you do get a lot of carnivores, is because the animals that died in the tar pit stayed above the ground for a long period of time, sure. the rest of their natural life. So they were yelling, they were squirming, they were, you know, calling for help. And if you are a pack of dire wolves or a saber-toothed cat who is, who is down on its luck, or, you know, a juvenile or, or something like that, and you see or hear the free food bell, you're going to be like, oh, it's the free food time. Let's, come on, buddies, let's get in the, let's jump on the pit. <laughs> What's in there. So in the specimens that you've studied them, in some of the specimens that you've recovered from the pit, you know, we, we look for uh, pathologies and we look for bite marks and claw marks and things. Do you see a lot of these claw marks and bite marks in the bones that are being recovered? Do you see, do you see active predation in the, uh, the, the fossils that we're unearthing? Um, the active predation is uh, not... It's about the same levels that it is at most uh, formations, partially because of the fact that it's hard to... Well, there's a couple of things. Mm. Number one, it's hard to pinpoint um, actual predation marks because there's a lot of where the bones in the pit are so stuck together and like compressed in this pit that they actually form dents in each other. Oh, do they really? You have, you know, Yes, yes, you'll have an arm bone and it'll be going along and then there's just where a leg bone was hitting up against it, there will be just a, a dent. And so sometimes that can make, you know, the process of finding these things a little bit more uh, hard to pinpoint. We do get the occasional uh, marks of, of predation and stuff like that. What's quite a bit more common actually than in most formations is disease-based pathologies. Okay, well, I feel like we've established credibility. So, <laughs> I think in the conversation, I, mean, I could say you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's something that's, that's so crazy about it to me is that, you know, mentioning stuff like dino riders and all the plastic toys and whatnot, that dinosaurs are, they found their way into that series of so many other franchises, you know, whether it be now or in the 80s, like, like He-Man and Thundercats and whatever. Transformers. Transformers, you know, just those like total, you know, toy filled ones. And yet, it, it's a branch of science. Mm -hmm. Like, how weird mm -hmm. is that? That, you know, this very complex and sort of 
uh, specific era of the history of the Earth was so compelling that it got turned into a toy line multiple times. Multiple <laughs> toy lines, so many different multiple. TV shows and books and stories, and it just captivated everything long since before the 80s. Uh, I, you know, have you have you done a lot of research into like, some of the origins of a lot of these mythological stories and creatures that we have discovered? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, of interesting, weird little, you know, side things yeah. to that. Like, the, I think the most famous one is, if you look at a mastodon skull, and, you know, have, having seen one at this point a lot more, I, uh, the, there are two uh, sort of weird things about it. One is that shrunk hole, which is definitely, you know, looks like you could put an eye right oh, sure. in there. And the other thing that's really weird is, you know, when you compare them to, say, a mammoth, Mastodons have uncannily human teeth. They really do. They look like, like a bunch of molars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're so custom, you know, compared to the, the sort of shoe-bottom tooth of the mammoth. And so it's just such a... You can just see it, you know, like something like a cyclops or a giant or or some creature with, you know, the tusked mouth and the eye and the teeth. It, it just comes right out. It's an easy logical so leap if you don't have other animals to compare it to. And if you don't exactly. put all those pieces together to say, okay, what is this really? Until then, it's like, well, obviously, this is an 18-foot tall man that eats people and looks at it with the one eye. <laughs> so, I mean, all these historical features that uh, have populated our myths and, and legends were from early paleontologists who were just trying to make sense of the world. So I want to ask you a question then. So be, uh, I know here in Florida, if we come across a specimen, and also usually they're, they're Pleistocene or Miocene, megafauna, things like mastodons and mammoths, and we have ground sloths here as well. But if you find something like a dugong, dugong is another vertebrate animal, lived uh, a long time ago, but their bones and their ribs particularly are so common that it's not, you know, oh, you found one? Great. Hang on to it. Keep it. It's yours now. But you find something that's significant, then the Center for uh, Vertebrate Paleontology here in Florida, which is the Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, they get involved and they want to take a look at the site and make sure we're studying everything else. Now, I imagine everything that comes out of La Brea is scientifically significant. But with this specimen in particular, does another museum get involved now that you've got something this uh, of this much magnitude? So the, um, the, the, the processing of La Brea, especially since uh, over the last 10 years, uh, chiefly because of one project that has supplied just a continuous stream of fossils, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands from this, you know, uh, group of deposits that was excavated in 2006. Um, it's very interesting. The L.A. County Museum of Art, which is, like, across the street, wanted to build a parking lot in one of the most asphalt deposit-rich places in the world. <laughs> and so, what do you know, they hit some asphalt underground, and when La Brea, you know, contacted them about it, they were like, okay, that's great. We like science and all, but we want this parking lot. Yeah. So they want to pave the paradise to put up a parking lot. <laughs> well, they just wanted to help. <laughs> I couldn't resist, Tony. Tony, you got what I was going for. I I, I couldn't not do it. <laughs> <laughs> but don't sing it though, because I'll get sued. 
<laughs> but they were able to, you know, reach a system where they actually boxed entire deposits in like boxes that you plant trees in yeah. and used a crane to move them over to a site in La Brea where they could start working on them because it was obviously very slow work. It's taken 12 years at least, and we're not done. Um, so there are now 23 boxes of oh my gosh these huge just dense masses of fossil that uh, are being worked through over time and because of that the the prepping system and uh, that whole sort of uh, aspect of it is it's become kind of a well-oiled machine so you have bones coming through you have people you know going on them, even with bigger projects like skulls and, mm -hmm. and larger bones, like, um, you know, sort of the, like the sloth thing I was talking about or stuff like that. People are working through them, moving through them because the collections hall is more than prepared for it. La Brea is a place where there have been nearly 5 million fossils uncovered. So they have the capacity to store things. And they really have gotten good over the last hundred years at, you know, just getting everything through and in collections and, and then uh, in a place where someone can come over and look at it for, say, you know, research project. When you hear about a lot of the big digs that are sponsored by museums and universities going out into these remote areas like the Badlands, Wyoming, South Dakota, the Gobi Desert, places like that. They have very strict amounts of time. Even going south in South America, like Patagonia and things like that, there's only a, a, a short time period that you can dig before the snow sets in or it gets too hot to move. Los Angeles stays pretty nice all year. Do you have mm -hmm. continual digging throughout the year or is there a, de a dedicated dig season? There is continual digging mm -hmm. of Project 23, which is those boxes. There is a, uh, a pit that is only worked on in the summer. Okay. Um, there is, that, that pit is Pit 91, which has actually been, I mean, they've been going through Pit 91 for decades. But the, um, the different conditions of it still being in the fissure um, kind of change things in terms of, like, there's still that oily layer on top. And there's a lot of weird sort of different stuff, especially with the asphalt. Uh, it can cool very easily, and then your work gets a lot harder. Yeah. It's actually sort of an interesting factoid. There are just about no possums or raccoons or those sorts of nocturnal mammals in the La Brea Formation. And the reason why is because when it's night, the top layer It cools, cools. down, so they can walk across yeah. it and get out of there with not a problem. Can, wow. <laughs> the only exception to this rule is that there have been a number of owls found in La Brea. Because they're swooping down and to catch a mouse or something like that, and they hit so hard that they still get smushed into the top oily layer. Exactly. Wow. All right. Dive into it. Such a bizarre ecosystem. It's just always going. Absolutely. And the digging is nice because there is a Jamba Juice right down the street. <laughs> <laughs> you just take a break, get it, 
smoothie and then come back. We'll be back with more of our interview with James and Tony and the Why Dinosaur Story in just a moment. But first, I wanted to take an opportunity to answer some of your questions that you submitted either through Instagram or Twitter at Dinosaur Podcast or through meeting me at a museum. <laughs> so we've got a bunch of questions that were brought up here. People were able to come up and stick them on post-it notes. Let's answer a couple of them, all right? How old do dinosaurs get? That's an excellent question. So we've actually got a few ideas as to why and how dinosaurs aged. One uh, amazing thing to be able to see is we can look inside the long bones of dinosaurs, things like the femurs and the humerus, the same bones that we have in other skeletons. We find these same ones in dinosaurs as well. And if we look inside these long bones, usually when they're broken in the field or we can actually break them in the lab because we're being careful about it and taking a close look at what's inside, we can open up those bones and find something called lines of arrested growth. They look kind of like tree rings if you look really closely at them. These lines of arrested growth give us a clue as to the age of dinosaurs in much the same way that tree rings tell us the spring and, and winter seasons that a tree grows through. These lines seem to appear about every five years. So if you look inside of the bone of a dinosaur, like a hadrosaur or even in this T-Rex specimen, we can guess that the dinosaur was five years for every line that we see. Based on that, Professor Greg Erickson at a Florida State University was able to reason that most tyrannosaurs lived in the wild for about 30 years. Let's take a look at one more for today. How do dinosaurs react to an injury? That's an excellent question. We find in a lot of different kinds of dinosaurs that have been injured during their life, we see the evidence of that in the bones left behind. We call that pathologies. We've talked about that before in previous episodes, but we've been making new discoveries about the kinds of pathologies dinosaurs had based on their behaviors. You might have heard about the idea of Pachycephalosaurus, this boneheaded dinosaur that would occasionally butt heads with its own kind. For a long time, that's what we thought. And then, some scientists came to the conclusion that the neck bones of Pachycephalosaurus weren't exactly strong enough to withstand the impact. And so it's probably more likely that they didn't butt heads directly against each other. Instead, maybe just butted against each other's like hind flanks to drive away for attention or for uh, mates in the rutting seasons, things like that. But just about two years ago, a new discovery was made looking for something that happens inside the skull of a pachycephalosaurus. We find large collections of what we call medullary bone. We find large deposits of what we call intramedullary bone. Think of it like a bruise, but in your bones. It's a place where an impact happens, the bone swells up, and then new bone cells can grow really quickly inside that same space. It allowed for pachycephalosaurs and their relatives to have a faster healing process for that important part of their noggin. This leads back to the idea that maybe, just maybe based on that evidence, they did butt their heads again. Just another example of paleontology where everything is right until it's wrong. You know, it seems like this year we've discovered a new dinosaur almost every week. Just take a look at the list of some of the names of creatures that have been found just in the last 24 months. That's amazing. 
One particularly interesting find is a new dinosaur found in Africa. It's a long-necked titanosaur, one of the largest animals that ever lived. And its name is... complicated. <laughs> There's a lot to say here because this dinosaur name is actually in Swahili. And I'm going to tell you what it means in just a second, but first I want to teach you how to say it. The name may seem like a mouthful, but I think with the right accompaniment, we can make it feel a little bit more familiar. <clears throat> Minyama Wamtuka. Such a wonderful beast. Minyama Wamtuka. Titan of the East. It lived in Africa, now the long neck's long deceased. She's a heavy tribe. You soar apart. See now. Minyama Wamtuka. It's fun. It's a very good time. It's okay. <laughs> I hope you sang along at the last part there. You follow the bouncing ball and all that sort of stuff. Minyama Wamtuka is an amazing new titanosaur found not too long ago, actually found just this year in Africa. Its name means the heart of the Matuka River. And what's really great about the reason we gave it that name is because out of the bones that were discovered, one of the bones of the tail was shaped like a heart. I think that's pretty awesome. You know what else is awesome? This new Y Dinosaurs movie coming out next year. Let's go back and see more with our good friends James and Tony. Let me, let me just remind you, he just turned 17 like a couple months ago. I don't, I'm not a dinosaur expert. I have learned to love them mm -hmm. through James. Um, but he's been talking like this for years and he's not so small and cute and everything anymore <laughs> but when he was like 13 14 and this kind of conversation was coming out of his mouth a lot of people paleontologists sort of stopped you know in their tracks and were like looking down at this kid and wondering mm -hmm. how he knew all of this and so it's just kind of neat you know the the pride of a, of a father to you know sit here and see how this is all Kind of evolving and uh you know like, he's been pretty shy he's not big on social media i push a lot of our social media efforts and i've been turned down a number of times to do a little video or show me a fossil or whatever and uh, i don't know and so i said you know we need to start <laughs> letting people know who, who we are who you are what we're doing and so this is kind of the first of that process. So thanks for having me. No, absolutely. And I think the, the, the subtle pushing and the prodding you've been doing has been going well because you're at 21,000 followers now on Instagram and the launch of uh, your, your brand new trailer for the upcoming documentary. And just the, the, the yeah. work that you guys have been doing so far has just been incredible to kind of share this to the world of, of what's actually happening. So let's, let's, let's talk now a little bit about the project that is on the top of everyone's mind right now. This documentary has been in the works for how long now? Uh, probably just a little over two years. Two years. We talked about doing a short. Because I, I own a video production company. I did, you know, study film in college. You know, life gets in the way. And <laughs> you put your dreams on hold. And... Eventually, hopefully, you get back to your dreams. And so I saw an opportunity, and we kind of came up with this idea together of like, well, I want to make a documentary, and you love dinosaurs. 
So what if we did a dinosaur documentary? You have met some incredible minds in the field of paleontology and in the study of dinosaurs in general. And uh, before this interview, we have part of the trailer for why dinosaurs showing up here. Uh, in the scope of the interviews and the, and the things that you've done so far, was there a particular specimen, uh, any fossils that you were introduced to in some of these backstage tours that is like, hey, this is the stuff that we don't show people out in the, in the, in the public galleries. Get ready to have your mind blown. Well, what blew your mind? when you were there were, there were a couple of, of really neat examples um one of them would be at the um at the royal Cyril museum in alberta which is just mm -hmm. you know hunk of chunk with fossils of every size and you know some of the ones that we saw were on display but we got an added experience like uh the the notosaur the borealopelta you know that was around the news we saw that in its case, and meanwhile, we're talking to the person, the people who discovered it and excavated it and named it. And it was like, okay, <laughs> added experience. <laughs> and then, um, you know, in in the collection halls of the uh, of the Tyrol, it's just it's like a Costco of every shelf is full of dinosaurs. You know, it's there are just but like if the entire Costco with big screen TVs. You know, <laughs> it's just the luck. Every Costco I've been to has been big screen. Amazing specimen of a, a Gorgosaurus with, uh, it was just not mm -hmm. completely articulated. It had a, a foot that was actually going like this and the toes coming out of the matrix. Yeah. Um, sort of up like that, almost in like almost in a light position because of how sort of prepped back it was. This is the one that's curved back, so you can see the rigor mortis is set in. So the entire in situ specimen is bent and twisted around. Correct? Yeah, it's one of those. It, it used ones. to it used to be on display. They just took it out of display. We have so a cast really of that thing. one here in Orlando at the Orlando yeah. so people can go up and <laughs> so see that one. That's one of the coolest pictures. <laughs> exactly, and that's the thing is like. What percentage of the stuff out on display is what they actually have, you know, mm -hmm. in the back? Yeah. And also, what percentage of the stuff on display is actually the real stuff versus casts and things that they've put together? And so to be able to see the real stuff and just drawers and drawers and, you know, I yeah. mean, it's, it's crazy. There, there's another cool example. When we went to, we went from the Tyrol up a couple of, hours to the uh, University of Alberta and we were talking to because the reason we went there is because uh, Phil Curry is actually faculty there now right um, yeah so we were talking with him and we were discussing you know okay where's the best place to interview and he's like well all the fossils are on the first floor because we can't put them above the first floor because if there were an earthquake the heaviness of this upper floor would destroy the other ones that's why when I was making the terrible, I made it all one story. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, and so we, we went downstairs and he shows us this um, full Styracosaurus skull. And it was something that up until that point, I, I'd never seen a Styracosaurus on display. Oh, really? You know? But to be right in front of one and see, like, the nose horn poking directly up you know, and all those crazy thrill things in the back, and it's just so um, crazy to 
to think of a thing that weird having been found. There's a there's an excellent specimen of a Ceratosaurus as well at the Museum of Natural History in New York City. Uh, they have their two separate dinosaur wings, one all for Saurischian dinosaurs like your T-Rexes and your Brontosaurus. And then for the Ornithischian dinosaurs, that's where you have your Stegosaurus and your Ceratopsians. And the Ceratosaurus they have on display, it's in it's an in-situ cast. So it's actually embedded in the matrix still, but the matrix is going down beneath it. So you can walk all around and see the entire, just the majestic creature that this was. And you, you are 100% right, James. It's awe-inspiring to see one of these creatures sitting right there. Like, that used to live here, and it's yeah. gone now. <laughs> the initial response in the first few days since you've announced the trailer and you revealed the project of Why Dinosaurs to the World, the response has been phenomenal. People are talking about this all over Instagram. Uh, seeing a lot of the other big-name scientists and paleontologists are sharing and getting the word out because this is such an important piece of art that you're creating, how did you come up with the name Why Dinosaurs? <laughs> Why that title? Well, yeah, I mean, we spent uh, months, you know, while in between interviews in the car for hours, just like, all right, titles, uh, <laughs> Dino, Doc, Doc, Documentus, or Dino Palooza, and Finally, one day out of the blue, James just says, you know, what about just why dinosaurs? And I was like, well, that's kind of intriguing. You know, why, why do we like them? Why do we study them? Why should we study them? Why dinosaurs and not all these other creatures that came before or after? To use James's word. So how can people get involved now to help the Why Dinosaurs Project continue going forward? So it, um, we have a site set up on Indiegogo. It is linked to www.whydinosaurs.com. <laughs> so if you can just if you just go there, you can see uh, you know we can see the trailer. You can see a bunch of other interesting little tidbits and behind the scenes stuff. Some stuff very young me doing random paleontology things. It's you know up to up to whoever sees it to donate however much they want or to you know spread the word if they wish just to sort of get the ball to, to continue rolling you know i, I think what what contrasts why dinosaurs from most of the documentaries that i watched as a kid or is that they are all in sort of the perspective of the actual material itself so they will focus on these sort of dinosaur stories and have them as the through lines and you'll have a consultant and maybe at the end sort of tell you about the paleontology surrounding the story but this is something that's much more uh, based on the people young people who are interested in just all of the concepts that that are surrounding dinosaurs like their their size and their names and their uh, the act of discovering them is, is it's astounding and it's wonderful you know to have that mm -hmm. initial jump into the scientific process so what do you see next as why dinosaurs continues to grow you said you took up more interviews to conduct you're getting ready for the premiere and then the editing process editing is hard that's, the, that's one of the longest things about making a movie is putting it all together but once all this is set, and once Why Dinosaurs is in the can and up on the screen, what's the next step? 
goes to college. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's pretty good. We That's a great start. We don't know. I mean, remember, this started as a, a short film, and maybe we can get it into a film festival. And uh, where it goes from there, we don't know. The, the, the dream of Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, uh, I wish you guys absolutely all the luck in the world. You've got the support of 65 million years of, of evolution driving behind everything that you guys have done so far. And so I wish you the absolute best with everything going forward. This is going to be an amazing project. I cannot wait to see what happens next. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks and, so much. And uh, with any luck, we'll be in it too. Well, that's on film. That's a binding contract now, Tony. I'm going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> My guests today have been James and Tony Pinto, the father-son duo behind Why Dinosaurs, an amazing new documentary. You can find out all about it on their Indiegogo page. The link is here in the description. Please go check this out. They're in, follow on Instagram. Check a look at all the amazing new things I have coming forward, and you're not going to be disappointed. Please go check it out. Thank you. Thanks very much for watching. If you enjoyed it, I'd appreciate a like. And if you want to see more, please consider subscribing and check out Dinosaur Podcast on Instagram. And remember, no matter what you do, where you're from, or how old you are, dinosaurs will always be awesome. And we're clear. All right, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll cut it there. <laughs> I need to get a clapper board. I don't have one. I, the best I can do is a really bad shadow puppet of a, of a mega mouth shark. All you, have to, all you have to do is... Just no, have a moment. That's, you that's it. That's all the capital board is good. So now I've got like 11 moments when I have to cut at the back of this now because we're doing it so much. That's it. <laughs>